Thank you for tuning in to the Meridian Friends Church podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss any of the sermons posted each week. You can also find more information about our church at www.meridianfriends.org or on Facebook or Instagram by searching Meridian Friends Church. Now, enjoy the sermon. What a beautiful prayer that Jesus would indeed come. May he flood this place as we continue to turn our hearts toward him. Would we be ready for it? I pray we will. I want to invite you to turn with the Bible to Matthew chapter 26 and to follow along with me. Matthew 26, we are now well into Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. As I was talking about waiting a little bit earlier, imagine the experiences of Jesus as he is awaiting the cross. And on this Thursday of the Last Supper, as we turn to Matthew 26, imagine it's a different kind of anticipation, isn't it? Of knowing that people closest to him are betraying him knowing the physical pain and suffering that is ahead, and yet also knowing that this is the reason for which he came, doing everything that he is doing for us and out of great love for us. I've chosen to invite you to think about this time of waiting for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday, this time of Lent, through the perspective and situational events and scenes of Peter, as Peter was certainly one of the closest to Jesus. I chose him because I think we can really all identify with Peter in one way or another. I think all of us wish that our faithfulness better lined up with our intentions, don't we? I think all of us have a desire to be more faithful to one who is so faithful to us. But in Peter's life, there's definitely a reminder of God's gentleness with us. He already knows about the betrayals, but he still loves them. He certainly knows about Peter's betrayals, and yet he chooses him as so important to the ongoing work of the church. I'm so thankful God chooses to use broken vessels, aren't you? Not just the pottery that's still completely whole and displays well. If we could unveil what our hearts look like this morning, I would just imagine there's an awful lot of brokenness to be healed. A lot of work for Jesus to do in us, and yet, He chooses broken vessels like us to do his best work. I hope you're encouraged in thinking about Peter because each one of these scenes that I've opened up to, whether it was last week walking on the water or Caesarea Philippi where he declares you really are the Christ, we see these highs and lows in the same scene of Peter sinking as well as walking on water and misunderstanding the cross when he declares that Jesus really is Messiah. And it's no different here at the Last Supper. As we read, we are reading these last events of 
Jesus' life as we get closer to Easter, just a few weeks off. We want to be reminded of the high price that Jesus paid for our forgiveness. We want to celebrate him. We want to honor him. And maybe in a certain way, we want to, if we can, wait with him. Prepare our own hearts and souls. Maybe to better appreciate the gift that Jesus offers us to celebrate that at this table, the table of communion, is a serious thing to do, of waiting and thinking about Jesus' body broken and his blood shed. And have you ever noticed how heavily framed the Last Supper is with the failure of the disciples? This time it's not just Peter who betrayed Jesus, it's really all of them and one of them more than anyone. Are you secure in God's grace for you today? Do you know Jesus forgives you, welcomes you to his table, and accepts you here? Would you stand with me as you're able? I am reading from Matthew 26, and I'll begin with verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12, and while they were eating, He said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the only one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had never been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will all be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same.
Jesus, thank you for your grace today. Thank you that you love failures. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I was thinking about this passage. Something that struck me differently about it is just the context of the whole thing of this origin of what we call communion with a wafer and with juice or with wine. This um, context of Jesus practicing his Jewish religion. Just thinking about that, you know, I don't know if you think that this is like pointing out the obvious, but Jesus was religious. <laughs> now, now, hold on. <laughs> I know it sounds funny. <laughs> but the longer I think you're in, say, a Protestant church, the more you hear about Jesus' criticisms of religion, right? Jesus questioning why they do what they do and always pointing out in his teaching and in his actions how religious people seem to miss the boat. And so the popular phrase goes something like this. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And what I want to say is it's not either or. <laughs> because what I see in this is Jesus being very religious. So again, this might sound strange, but notice a few verses that I think highlight this for us and maybe cause us to think a little differently about Jesus. Because we know he was not only fully divine, but he was fully human as well. And part of being fully human is that he walked into a particular context, the Jewish faith. God has been working through this faith all along since the promise to Abraham to bring about the Messiah. And Jesus was very faithful as a religious person. Have you ever just stopped and really thought about that? It's kind of interesting to me. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, the disciples are saying, hey, are we going to get ready for Passover? Because here we are. That's why we've come to Jerusalem, by the way. And, and so, you know, what's next? And so, yeah, I made this arrangement. Go to this certain house. You're going to find that and then get ready for the Passover. There's never, in verse 17 of this introduction of the Lord's Supper, of this introduction of the Passover, there's never are we going to celebrate the Passover this year? Because I know in Jesus, everything's new. And so there, there's never a question about if. It's just, we need to take care of the particulars. Are you religious? Are, are you faithful in being religious? And it's a tricky question because the truth is we're all creatures of habit, aren't we? And to be religious means you do something a certain way over and over and over again, right? But if we're honest, what you did last Tuesday morning at 9.30 a.m. might have been the same thing that you were doing the Tuesday before at 9.30 a.m. Because we just start our day the same way. We have certain routines that we like to do. I notice that when I shave, for whatever reason, I use my right hand and I start right here <laughs> and go this way. And, and I've tried to mix it up before and do this. And I'm just afraid I'm going to cut myself because it's so unfamiliar. We're all people of habit. We're just a bundle of habits. And it was Blaise Pascal that said, a great theologian and, and, and a great mathematician, 
Some habits lead us closer to God and some habits lead us further away from God. Are your habits leading you closer to God? Are you religious in a good way? Jesus was very religious. You know, if, if for example, on Sunday morning you wake up and say, are we going to church? Or is it the assumption, right? That, that's one telltale sign. That it's not a question. And you kind of know that it's become a part of who you are if it's no longer, well, tomorrow's Sunday. What am I going to do? Oh, I could go to church. Jesus, I just want to point out, yes, he was big on relationship, right? He was big on religion too. In verses 26 to 28, um, in this whole institution of take this wafer and remember my body broken for you, it was the third of the, what we call matzah. I'm not sure that they would call it that back in that day that this was broken for you. And when he takes the cup, the cup of suffering, and, and he says, this is my cup, and there were different cups in the Passover meal. He's being very religious. He's practicing something that had been handed down for generations and generations and generations and generations. And he's following a command, an Old Testament command, to remember what God did for you in setting you free from the bondage of slavery. I don't know. Does that change the way you think about Jesus now? <laughs> Sometimes when we think of communion, we think of uh, the juice, and we think of the, the, the bread. We think that that's invented with the new life of Christ being introduced into the world. But actually, it's an interpretation of something that had been around a very long time, right? No heresy here? You're all agreeing with that? The same thing with baptism. There were mikvahs outside of the temple, and they would cleanse, bathe, and then get in. And John's baptism wasn't a new thing. Oh, but it was new in this way. It was baptism of repentance. He had to explain what kind it was. So they were all familiar with these practices. They, they knew what they were. And then in verse 30, when they'd sung a hymn, what's more religious than that? It's not even a praise chorus. Do you see it? When they'd sung a hymn when they got to the Mount of Olives. Did you know that was there on Monday, Thursday? On, on this Thursday of, they even sang a hymn at the Mount of Olives. If you go to the Mount of Olives, think about it. There they are. They're, they're in, in one of the most religious places in the world, practicing faithfully what they did. We know from John's gospel particularly that, that every year of Jesus' public ministry, all three years, he went to Jerusalem. That's a four-day walk. If you go 10 miles a day. So think about that. This isn't a casual thing. Wouldn't you think that Jesus had, a, you know, saving the world stuff to do, all these healings of people that weren't healed, and all these teachings that he needed to pass along, that he would take out that much time to go and celebrate Passover and then go back to Capernaum or Galilee area? What's going on? Something, obviously, he really values. And then um, in Matthew 26, 31, he quotes Torah. He, he, he quotes the prophets. He quotes uh, Zechariah, saying that when the shepherd is struck, all the sheep will scatter. Jesus knew his scripture. He went to synagogue all the time. He learned Torah. Kind of interesting thing. I know what you're thinking. He wrote the book. He's also fully human, and so I don't know how all those dynamics worked out, but being fully human, he was very religious. And this is kind of an interesting thing. And I want us to see the Last Supper today 
maybe a little differently, as a religious reality. Because the truth is, whether we admit it or not, Quakers are extremely religious. You know that? The Friends Church is very religious. Sometimes we're religious about not being religious. And we're very careful about it <laughs> in the way we say things, in the way we do things, or the way we don't do things, or the care in which we take not to do things. Does that make sense? Which makes us just like everybody else. Everybody thinks that the Quakers are unique. Well, yes, we're unique just like everybody else. See the irony in that? Okay. The question isn't about whether we're religious or not. The question that, that I want to pose is that restorative. Does our practice of what we're in the habit of doing, for good or bad, if you like habits or don't like habits, some people just like to change habits, just to change habits. I watched a TED Talk once on how to tie your shoes differently. You want to mess up your life, try it. <laughs> for months, I was wondering, is this the new way or is this the old way? Because if you go this way, every time you step, it loosens your shoe. But if you go this new way, according to the TED Talk, it tightens your shoe every time you go. I'm not making this up. But we're religious, whether it's for better or for worse. It's just the way we're used to doing things. I want to talk about three elements here of good religion. Because we live in a world that's totally given up on that idea. Am I right? But here you are. It's beautiful weather for this time of year. It's spring break, and you've decided to come to worship. <laughs> and are we hitting the mark? You know, Peter's life's all about restoration, and this is all framed in the context of failure and God redeeming us from failure. And communion, to quote one Quaker, being our only hope of restoration. We believe in it so strongly. If that's all true, are we doing this in a way that, that's meaningful and that makes sense? Friends, are never opposed to practicing religion. They're opposed to practicing empty religion. <laughs> and so let me, let me offer some pieces that I see here. Good religion, number one, remembers grace. You know that's what Passover is all about, right? I mean, we have to change the image from the chalice and the bread to fit Jesus' image here of the matzah and the lamb bone, all kinds of odd things, hard-boiled egg, horseradish. <laughs> because all of these symbols had certain meaning in the Seder meal, Passover. They all had significance, and if you've never experienced um, a Seder meal from a Messianic Jew, it's a beautiful, beautiful experience. Because you see just how much Jesus fulfills being our Passover lamb, right? How the parallels are there with Jesus' redemption by his blood sprinkled over us to pass over the judgment. It's always a remembrance of grace. One of the things I think religion is good for is it does remind us of something important. And if we insist on being non-religious, sometimes we don't do well to intentionally remember. And Jesus, of course, is rightly quoted often, especially in the other Gospels, as saying, do this in remembrance of me. 
And Jesus didn't balk at that and say, well, you know, some people, they didn't get Passover and what it really meant or they're rejecting me. He still participates in it. And he brings new life to it and he brings new meaning to it. He, he participates in something that's old and can be stale, I guess, in some circles. But Jesus reinterprets it. It's always a remembrance of grace. At one time, they were in slavery. Uh, you know, the, the, the parts of the meal are to remind you that you had to make straw without bricks. Uh, straw without bricks. <laughs> that would be impossible. <laughs> or is it possible? I don't know. You can make it with seeds. Bricks without straw, etc., etc. Et it remind you of the bitterness, uh, the unleavened bread, that you were in a hurry, that, that y- you needed something that would last as you went off into the freedom of the Exodus. They're all remembrances that God's been gracious to us. Does worship do that for you? Does your religion do that for you? You read through scripture and you think, what a love people we are. How mighty is God's outstretched arm? How amazing. I think we probably don't think enough about the old bondage and the old life that God redeems us from. And it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to remember religiously that we've been rescued. We're loved, we've been delivered, we've been saved. We're not subject to the penalty of sin because Jesus absorbed that death and that penalty for us. Lent is a natural religious time to think about that. It's an intentional time at some point, whenever it is, to stop and say, thank you for your body broken for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you shed your blood for my forgiveness. It's always a remembrance of grace. It's a remembrance that God has worked in the past. How has God worked in your past? To stop and reflect. Maybe it was generations ago that you can look back and see. Maybe it was decades ago that you can look back and see I so enjoyed one of the friends' mails that went out about women's retreat this past week as someone was reflecting on their childhood experiences at Quaker Hill. Love that. What a religious thing to do, to go to camp year after year after year. Isn't it amazing that God still humors us and shows up? (laughs) It's not a, well, it's probably a four-day walk. (laughs) It'd be a lot more than that, wouldn't it? (laughs) It's a long ways away. But we make the effort to do certain things because we know we need to be reminded that God's been good in our past. It's it's a reminder, a good good religion always points us back to Jesus. That's the grace that we're remembering. Jesus helps them understand. I am the wafer that was hidden and is resurrected, whose body was broken. I am the blood of suffering that was poured out for your salvation. This is me. He's helping us see that in all of our religious practices. It's possible to be very religious and miss Jesus. And and that's what Jesus constantly talks about to those who are practicing these things and totally missing the fact that Jesus is present. But the meaningful use of it is something that Jesus was all in on, apparently. There he is at a Passover meal. 
Good religion also delights in rest from our labor. Part of what you might miss if you're not familiar with these kinds of festivals is that they are absolutely joyful. Not what you think of when you think of Old Testament faith. Am I right? I had an eye-opening experience um, a little while back this last fall when we were at Jesus' home stomping grounds near the Sea of Galilee, and we stayed at a hotel run by a kibbutz of farmers, and we went in on a Friday night to eat. They had a big cafeteria where everybody who was staying there would eat. And there was this section reserved right as you went by the front to get to where you know, us goyim would go eat, it's non-Jews. But they, were, they had their own section, and you could tell the Jewish people who were celebrating Shabbat on Friday night, Sabbath, and those of us who were just tourists and were hungry. We would walk by them. They were all dressed to the nines. And, and the thing that just shocked me was, was the laughter. Oh, my word. These people were laughing and laughing hysterically. They burst out into songs a few times. There were children dancing around. They knew the songs. They knew the words. They were ecstatic to be there. I thought, huh. I'd like to take these people to a Quaker meeting. Because <laughs> I think they got something right. It's about remembering God's grace. In their theology, Sabbath, rest is so important. They wouldn't think of cutting corners on rest. They're going to take the whole day to do it. They're going to take four days. They're going to take whatever. We miss that somehow. Our culture doesn't know how to celebrate anymore. We're too busy. We're too serious. <laughs> we don't dance and sing like kids. We miss that. I think good religion, religion helps us to do that. Helps us to laugh and to celebrate the joyful presence of Jesus among us. We have so much more to celebrate, don't we? And sometimes we just don't do it. You know, in their theology, and, and in ours, how about this? You know what happened on the sixth day of creation, right? What happened? Oh, we're going to have to go back to Torah class. What happened on the sixth day of creation? God made people, right? Of course. That's, that's all he did on that day right there. That's a big deal. It's a pinnacle of creation. There, there it is. Look at that. What happened on the next day? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> Think about this. <laughs> Think about this. We get the idea that we get a day of rest because we've worked really hard for six days. This is not the order of creation at all. The first thing God did with humanity is he had them delight in this gift of time and fellowship with himself. And out of that delight comes hard work, not the other way around. And there's almost a theology of grace in the Old Testament in that. Do you see it? That if we really don't understand God's invitation to celebrate, 
to stop taking your life so seriously that you can't put it down for 24 hours. Your distractions, everything else. Simply to rest. Now again, I'm speaking as a friend. I don't want to be legalistic. It's the last thing that I want. But I don't want to be outdone by Jewish people living in Capernaum, modern-day um, Tiberias. I, I don't want to be outdone by them in my joy. It's kind of a wake-up call. There's joy in Jesus. There's joy in his invitation to break free and rest. And I have to tell you, it takes discipline. It isn't a question mark of whether we're going to read the Bible or whether we're going to meet with our small group or whether we have time to worship. We do those things out of delight, out of joy. It's the last thing we would ever cut out. We're made for this. We're made for relationship with him. That's good religion. It's more of what I picture going on at the Last Supper. Speaking of grace, if you want to jot down Exodus 6, 6 to 7, there are no less than five promises that are celebrated at Passover. All of them are fulfilled in Jesus. I'll bring you out of slavery. Have you been rescued from the bondage of sin? I'll free you from being slaves to them. We reject freedom, by the way. We, we, we still just want to stay in our lives and not, not participate in the rest and freedom of Jesus. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm. I'll take you as my own people, and I will be your Abba Father. I will be your God. Don't you love that? That's good stuff. That's Old Testament. It's no wonder they're joyful. They know what they're celebrating. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just don't stop and appreciate it. We do let our religion become an in and of itself, don't we? It's just a form. The reality is here. Jesus Christ is present with his people. We already know he's risen. Is that, is that a spoiler alert? I know you're expecting that in a few weeks. I hope. There it is. Good religion. It remembers grace. <laughs> and it welcomes sinners. This might be a little more of a stumbling block to Old Testament theology of exclusion. But Jesus redefines some things for us, and it's pointed out in various ways. This is a really unique Passover meal. In a Passover meal, you're never to speak ill of the host. Well, they not only speak ill of the host, they end up rejecting him the same night. You walk away with all kinds of ambivalent feelings from the Passion Week and even from the Last Supper, don't you? The host leaves from this joyful celebration completely brokenhearted. So much so, he, he goes to the garden to pray. We'll look at that next week. We have the disciples who are now questioning, what did he mean by that? I, it, me? I would never do this. All of them said that. Judas says that specifically. Peter says that specifically and repeatedly. I would never betray you. I find it beautiful, actually, in this brokenness that, that Jesus invites this group to follow him. I find it hopeful 
for all of us. And, and I think this is what good religion should be and could be and is. Bad religion is, it's us in here complaining about them out there. Right? What if the us, the world, still lives in here? You don't know where I'm going yet, but uh, I'm gonna, I told you I'm going to preach on Peter on Easter Sunday. I'm going to start a series on First Peter after that. I'm going to talk about this new life. And it's what Peter says, is that there's still this, this, this worldliness that's inside of us. And it's not about us as resident aliens in this world, arguing with the world and fighting with the world. It is not that. The truth is, the world still exists inside of you. Put it to death. And don't you have any compassion on that world around you because all of you used to be in this empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. That's a different sermon. But good religion always welcomes broken people to the table. And, and what's the number one indictment from the world around us about us? We're judgmental. We don't really want people with problems at our table. <laughs> and the truth is, we are the problem. <laughs> Even Peter, certainly Judas, all the disciples. Why does he say all of them will betray him that night? You remember what happens? He says, stay awake and pray. He's in agony. And he comes back and they're all asleep. We'll look at that next week. All of us, in our own ways, have walked away. That's our reality. And yet we're invited to this table of restoration. Aren't you grateful? Don't we want to extend that and share that for all? However, and, and this, is, this, is, this is harder, the Lord's Supper, even here, with what happens with Jesus in this inaugural event of reinterpreting Passover. Jesus exposes our hearts. See, I know what you're thinking. Didn't Paul say something in 1 Corinthians 11 about do not partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, right? You're thinking that, right? What are you saying? What are you saying these sinners are welcome? Well, it's not that sinners aren't welcome because the table would be empty otherwise, right? But I think what we see here is that insincerity is not welcome. Really interesting what Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 11. And if I were to read it, um, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven to 34, if you're interested. It's really kind of an interesting thing. Let me say this and see if you see it. What he's really saying is, for the fake or for the phony among them, receiving this communion is receiving a poison. He's, he's really saying, watch out, this is, this is really serious stuff. So see if you see it here, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ and eat and, uh, and drink, drink judgment on themselves. What happened to Judas after this? It's powerful. But, but our sin isn't the problem. We miss that, don't we? And we want, to, we want to make the dividing lines and say, you're in and you're out. You're allowed and you're not allowed. But look at that. Jesus sees the heart. And he's the only one who can. Good religion always penetrates to the heart level. Brings us to a place of the Holy Spirit searching us and changing us. You know, God loves us so much, he accepts us right where we are. And he loves us so much, he won't let us stay there. Paul has some really interesting things to say about that. And, and really, 1 Corinthians, and especially this section, it's really a handbook on the appropriateness of what to do and not to do in worship. It's kind of an interesting guide to religion. <laughs> you don't think the New Testament's religious. It's really interesting stuff to me. It isn't a matter of whether we're religious or not religious anyway. Even as a friend, I say that, a very convinced friend. It's about whether we do this in the right way or the wrong way. It's whether we do this with a heart open to Jesus or, or a heart closed. It's whether we do this with a heart open to a broken world that we're called to reach or, or whether we're stuck in our own internal judgmentalism. I want to leave us with a moment of silence. Inviting the Spirit to speak to us personally. I think examination is important. And I'll leave you with this thought. Have you ever wondered why there was a betrayer in God's plan all along? This Judas thing, this seems so cruel. Jesus could have been arrested without Judas, right? He could have been crucified without all that going on. And the only thing I've ever come across that makes sense to me to answer that question is that in order for Jesus to drink fully from the cup of suffering of humanity, he had to be betrayed by someone close to him. You ever had that? Jesus drinks fully from that cup. Psalm 41, verse 9, David foretold this. He said, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Be reminded today of the incredible depth of the love of Jesus Christ for you and I. And out of that, may we allow him to examine our hearts and to search our souls. And then I'll just close us in a moment with prayer. Lord, as somebody who wasn't personally raised in religion, I'm so grateful for the faithfulness of others before me. I'm so grateful that they became in my life vessels of hope and redemption and forgiveness and care.
Jesus, during this season of prayer and fasting and waiting and listening to you, prepare us as your vessels. Lord, we would not resist your examination. Only you know where we pretend. Thank you for the incredible efforts of good people to do something that's tremendously hard to keep a church even going. Lord, here we are to say we offer to you everything that we expect, hope for, think ought to happen. And we want to pray for your cleansing of this vessel. We want to pray for your examination. We want to pray for your effectiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace over each one of us and your promise to restore us as we bring ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have our announcements first, and then we'll have a closing song as that's concluded. Thank you, Jacob.